0: Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 33, Unsane from 2018. I am Tobin Addington.
1: I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Tobin is here. He is fighting his way through his allergies. You heard that voice crack in the opening. We are here. This is sort of kind of similar, Mike, to like Man Down. Like Man Down was perfectly timed. This is like a little bit out, but it's kind of like the bookend to the phase one of Cinemaker Steven Soderbergh, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised that it lasted this long, to be quite honest. You know, when we were originally planning this out, we stopped a few movies ago. Like we definitely got more than we were expecting and it's pretty great and some. Really psyched to be back here after, you know, straying a second with Fade and those two
1: movies last time. But we are back with Soderbergh and we are back with Tobin. Today is the first time that I saw this movie. I know that Mike saw it in theaters. Tobin, did you see it in theaters or did you watch it for the first time for this?
0: No, this is my first time. And what did you think? I thought it was really interesting. I will watch a mediocre Soderbergh movie before like good movies by a lot of other people. So yeah. you know, obviously we've been doing the show, you know, I'm thoroughly in the tank for Soderbergh. It's not my favorite. It comes in the middle of the pack. There are things about it I think that are really good. It feels to me like the experiment that I think that it was. Uh what did you think of it?
1: Well I message you guys, this is like my biggest fear in life that being basically wrongly accused of something and not being able to prove your innocence. And that is terrifying to me. So like that was super icky to me. This also notably is all filmed on an iPhone 7 with the app Filmic Pro, which I looked it up and the Filmic Pro app cost $15. So it's like the cheapest you could probably film a film for. I think it costs like $1.2 million. I mean he put money into this, but you know, in terms of the actual video equipment, like it's not very expensive. Yeah,
2: you still just gotta buy sound equipment and
1: that's that's about it and pay your people. Right. I liked this movie. I was expecting to like it more. I wish, and I, I sort of, I don't I don't want to say that I get mad at Mike when he like sort of rewrites movies entirely, but like, I wish that the movie was more ambiguous. Yeah. Like, I wish yes. that you didn't know if she was crazy or, sa- or if she was sane or insane or unsane or whatever, that sort of about halfway through the movie, you're like, oh no, this guy is actually this guy who's been, Stalking her and followed her here from Boston, and it's just sort of disappointing when it kind of when it kind of becomes pedestrian. And we sort of have a little bit of a comeuppance at the end where you're not sure if maybe she is actually unwell. But I wish that there was more, you know. I wish that the movie played with you a little bit more as opposed to just being like, oh, right now, like, just how is she gonna get out of this?
2: I hear you. Like, this movie definitely played different for me the second time around. I actually wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did the first time. The first time I I felt that ambiguity much more when I first saw it and uh, it didn't really crack for me until he drops the pill, the extra pill in her cup and she has like that episode and everything. And then I was like, okay, he's definitely actually there. And then I guess when he visits the mom and everything. But yeah, I I agree, like they could have teased that out a little bit more, but watching it this time, knowing that she wasn't crazy, you know, or at least that she was pretty much sane when it came to him, that he really was there. it plays different, but I still liked it, and I felt that the shift it makes worked a little better. It kind of goes from like psychological to at one point in the third act, it becomes very physical. You know, it becomes yeah. much more of like what would be I don't know, much more of like a a real horror film or like a you know like a traditional horror film. Like this to me is scary, Um, (laughs) that whole idea like she, you know, signing something you're not aware of and then the ramifications of that and, you know, like relinquishing your free will and all this kind of thing like that, to me, is terrifying also. So, I enjoyed it the same, but like on different levels I guess, for different reasons, and then I also really just enjoyed the sheer Soderbergh of it all, just the like, I got like a bubble girlfriend experience out of this movie, like, you know, shooting on iPhones, like testing different angles, just being experimental but then also finding something to focus on, like the indictment of mental health institutions and the way that they take advantage of people and healthcare and, you know, it's Soderbergh. So, like, he's going to, you know, actually have... Um, I mean, like, horror films have sociological underpinnings, of course, like, that's a major part of it, but, like, leave it to him to make it so, like, technical or, and, like, in the forefront, I don't know, I just really liked that about it also, like, there was more to it than just being a straight-up try-to-scare-you thing, it's also like, well, there's, like, other things uh, happening as well, so I guess, like, not only did I get, like, that anxiety from her situation, but I also was, like, interested to keep watching because of, like, the J. Pharaoh stuff and the investigation and everything. So I found it enjoyable again.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how he's able to take this what starts is the psychological thriller and make it about sort of institutions and and systems and the American dream and this the idea that that she's been committed as a way for this company to make its money from the insurance company and that that's it's almost kind of a scam that they're running and like a really nefarious one but the but the face of it is all about care right is all about caretaking and helping people and making them better and and that he's sort of once again ripping the mask off that my favorite parts of this movie have to do with her sort of dealing with the institution that she's in, and, and the way that that system is clearly not working for her, and the police aren't working, like, the, you know, the, she calls the cops, and they're like, they have nothing to do, right? Because they can't do anything, because she signed the paperwork to commit herself un- unknowingly. And then her mom, who comes looking, who comes to see her and tr- is trying to get her out, has called a lawyer on the way, on, like on a, on a drive, we see her talking to this lawyer, this lawyer talking to her, and we see that the sort of legal system isn't working for them either. And I think that, that those are the moments where it feels like it's not just about the This woman who's being stalked. It's a movie about how we don't even realize that we are part of these systems, and that you know one sort of wrong move and it flips us to the other side of those systems, and we are truly fucked. And his ability to to sort of get that across, while also telling this what eventually becomes a real horror movie. Like I wrote in my notes, just like you were saying, I said, "Holy shit! It really does become a horror movie." The the way it was kind of built, I think. That once again shows sort of how smart he is about the way he uses his stories. I think, in a way, it's also kind of like a continuation of side effects. Totally. I sort of got like
1: a little bit of a vibe there. I mean, it sort of drifts from that. I think that there is a little bit of that clinical, sort of, I guess, you know, man versus the machine or man versus the system or what have you. I think that there's a little bit there. I guess it is sort of his first foray into horror. I don't think this is super, super horror. I think it's more psychological thriller. But I also don't know, I guess everybody defines horror differently. The last episode of Cinemakers, Mike and I talked about Evil Dead and Don't Breathe, and those are both much more in that horror wheelhouse that I than what I would sort of consider. What it kind of came down for
2: to me is like, and what it kind of comes down to, I guess... For horror is like, does it scare me? Am I scared? And like, I'm very hard to scare when it comes to films and stuff just because I've been watching that shit for so long. I feel like it's just, it's hard. Like, I'm desensitized. <laughs> but scary movies, I'm scared to shit from like Mulholland Drive, Lake Mungo, and that, The Witch, that recent one, The Witch. Yeah, I rewatched yeah. that and I'm like, God. But like, this scared me. Like, it scared me in multiple ways. Like, I got anxiety watching this movie because I felt like I was in her shoes. No one's telling her what she's done, but they know that she doesn't. Doesn't know what she's done. So it's very like she's getting the exact opposite treatment that she's seeking and stuff. So like, I'm getting very anxious watching this. And then also like the way the system is working and stuff too. So I don't know. I think it's working for me on multiple levels. And like, I think it needed that. I don't know if it can sustain as just a sheer sort of like stalker trapped in an asylum movie. I think it also needed a little more, at least for Soderbergh, maybe the type of filmmaker he is. I feel like anyone else would have left the rest of that kind of stuff out like I feel like the sort of shock corridor character of like Jay Farrow who's like undercover like in there like trying to bust the institution up and stuff like I almost feel like that character would have just been an inmate or you know or like a patient in a different draft or something but that it was sort of ramped up to be thought-provoking and intellectual and, and informative and that to me is scary like what that addresses is scary and that scares me the idea that any ordinary person like you have a job you go to work like you have a mom and family and stuff but then like the next day you're in the system and you're trapped in there and you can't get out like that is scary to me so is it a horror movie? Maybe not but it's a scary movie to me
1: so I thought Jay Farrow, I thought he was going to be, because he seems like the most normal guy there, which he is because he's undercover as a journalist. But I thought he was going to break bad in a way that he was actually like the most unseen person of all. Right, right. And so I, I sort of sense that there was a twist there, but it wasn't at all what I was expecting. So that was cool to see. I also like, I mean, I always point this out when I can. I like that Soderbergh once again goes into that comedian well, or sort of the stand-up comic well, that he brings Jay Farrow over from SNL. He brings- Bobby a, Kelly- is Bobby Kelly yeah, yeah. from like Louie and from a bunch of different stuff like he's the he's I don't even think his name I think he's just Steve's partner you know the other cop but I just like that there are these guys who for the most part don't have funny things to do I mean I think Jay Faro maybe has one funny line about I wish I could go one day without getting a rain check for a blowjob like it's just like there's like a one little aside there but like for the most part there's nothing funny in this movie and they're carrying themselves pretty well like I wonder if he doesn't like look at all these people that I can make act and like play you know serious dramatic roles and like I can do it well Jay Farrow, it's like he left SNL and went on to have- have like that
2: show that is like loosely based on jamie foxx or something i heard or whatever that show was that he had uh, uh, on like showtime or cinemax or something so like i know he was out there you know getting work and transitioning and stuff but to see him like play it straight like he's good like i liked him like i don't know i didn't really notice him so much on snl like i don't feel like he stood out there but to me he does here he feels like a like a lead like the co-lead you know like uh, claire foy that's her name is she's great in this like she carries this like just like the way she switches on and off when the way she talks to like the orderlies and the doctor and the way she try, and then she just like snaps and slaps like the other patients it's, it, like it's great like her range in this is just incredible so we've talked about before just how he is able to get just these great performances and I think he he found people who were just right for the
0: situation just I think across the board um like everyone's really good in this. I didn't know him from anything, and I thought he was very, very good. There's something about Soderbergh, feels in this like he's using some of his actors to keep us off balance in the way that she's off balance. And I wonder if casting comedians, if you come in knowing someone is known for comedy, and then they show up in this, it just, it's just you know, a little bit more distance between you and your expectations and what they're giving you that, that I think he's just so good at mining that at using that to create what, what feel like very real moments. I agree. Claire Foy is so good in this. I don't know if you guys have watched The Crown. I've chugged through all the, both both seasons of The Crown so far where she plays Queen Elizabeth. And you should check out a little bit of it, if only to see how she is in it. It's completely different. I mean, obviously it would be, but it's almost as if it's a different actor. I mean, talk about range. And you can see why she would take this role. Just It's so much more outwardly physical. I guess her performance in The Crown is very physical because she has to transform herself into this woman who has to hold herself in this sort of very restrained way, which is its own kind of physicality. But this is a whole other side of her that I think, you know, as, as the movie goes on and she becomes, by the end of it, Joy, I was thinking about the movie that you and I and Aizan talked about recently on The Contenders, Revenge. Yep. And there's an element of that in this movie as the movie winds into its climax that gave me some of the similar feelings to that as she takes control over this man who's been terrorizing her. And it's very satisfying. Absolutely. Just
1: a quick side note of Claire Foy, of importance to me, she's going to be in the next Ryan Gosling movie, that movie First Man, where he's Neil Armstrong, she's in that too. So I'm excited to see that. And rumor from the set is that Ava Mendez was not happy how close they got on set. But, uh, you know, that also might just be the gossip rags that we read about on Canadian Goose and the Loose, Canadian Gauze, on The Laws, on Boyfriend <laughs> Material. But yeah, I mean, I will never tire of the genre of a woman getting revenge on men who treat her poorly. Just, you know, it feels like there is this bigger conspiracy there, you know, like going all the way back the cage club the snake eyes and you know hungry rabbit jumps and you know there's definitely more than five people in on this conspiracy right oh yeah but she only gets the revenge i guess on the one who directly affects her because everybody else like they're all incarcerating her but it's not because of her it's just because she has insurance like this guy is like directly terrorizing her and so yeah it's cool that she gets revenge on That i just sort of wish that she was able to like take down everybody i, I don't know i don't know why she would she does oh. the, well i mean but like kill them yeah
2: yeah but like i didn't expect her to like murder the administrator, even though that bitch was a bitch, like, uh, but the whole place gets taken down at the end, you know? Jay Farrow made, like, a call early on for her, and then, like, when his body's discovered, the truth about him being a reporter comes out, and then there's, like, the cops show up, and, you know, like, they go down, so like, I'm glad everything gets burned at the end of this one, but for me, all that mattered was the catharsis of her killing the stalker dude at the end, you know what I'm saying? Like, as long as that happened, I was satisfied. And then it takes it like a step further which i wasn't expecting but i also am okay with you know the idea that it's never really over in your head or you know whatever he's getting at there at the end that like it's a constant battle that she's gonna have to face for the rest of her life even though she knows like pretty much with certainty that he's dead but that it haunts her i understood where this movie could sort of like pump up certain places and be stronger but like then I was like ultimately I don't think it needs to do that there's plenty of other movies that are like bloodier or have jump scares and that kind of thing and this to me just gets at me more you know on that psychological level that I don't need all that other physical stuff but it's okay when it sneaks in at the end there that's okay I understand what it needs to do to sort of placate the genre or just like wrap up the story in a certain way and I'm, I'm okay with it I don't feel like it betrays its previous whatever it's been doing for the whole running time there in the final 30 minutes. It feels okay that it plays out like that.
0: Yeah, that administrator is such a fascinating character. She and the doctor. I think that Soderbergh feels that they are as culpable as George, the guy who's stalking her in some ways. He's done this before where we've got these people who sit behind desks and make decisions about people's lives without but, but sort of avoiding facing the human consequences of that, like making truly moral, morally disgusting decisions, but doing it in, in a way that's like clinical enough that they can sleep at night. And I think he has really real contempt for that. And, you know, it's very satisfying to me that she's going to get hauled off to a trial. I mean, I think that's, that's more satisfying to me than her dying because that is her worst nightmare. I feel like she's going to be the face of all of this in like a, on like a national level. And I think that that's probably is to her what the sort of solitary confinement is to the sort of inmates or whatever, the, the patients at this place.
1: I would hope so. But I also wonder if, and the movie doesn't really give you any of this indication, but it's a movie like you were saying before, Tobin, it's like a movie of society and the systems failing you. And I wonder if she's able to get off somehow. You know what I mean? Because it's like the cops let them down, the lawyers let them down, everybody lets them down. And, you know, she gets arrested and it's national news coverage, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to be found guilty. Like, who knows? Because she's a rich white lady. I mean, she might get off. Who knows? But that's not what this
0: movie's about. That's true. Although I have a feeling that if Soderbergh made the sequel, if we find out what happened, to her, given how Soderbergh has what he's done in his other movies, that the system would keep going. The company wouldn't get brought down, right? Like these institutions will still find out a new way to do what they're doing. But in order to do that, this woman is now going to become the Claire Foy of the next thing. Like she's now in this other system and sort of locked in it. Like she's been tossed from one side of the desk to the other. And that oh. that was sort of, I think is something that he's kind of, would be kind of interested in too.
2: She's got that one super strong scene with Claire's mom. You know, she's basically threatening her to say, like, if you go to your lawyers, like, we have an entire team of lawyers. And not only that, but, like, we'll make it hard for your daughter to ever get work again. Really threatening to destroy her life, like, for real in the long term and stuff. That is clarification to the audience that she is a bad person there. Or at least that, that she is the face of this institution for all intent and purpose of the film. So that when she goes down, to me, it feels like she's going to go down. Yeah, she might get replaced and the corporation is going to like change its name and have another, you know, they're going to move on and stuff. But like, yeah, I felt a bit more closure with her when she got cuffed that she knew like, oh, even when I touted, oh, those lawyers, like they're probably not going to have my back. (laughs) Like that's the way the company works, right? Like they'll just write her off and treat her like shit and just, you know, whatever with her, like it doesn't matter. Like just get someone else.
1: Is this a movie, either in style or content or anything, that's sort of a throwback to the 70s? Because I... I feel like the middle of the movie feels very modern and sort of fresh, but the beginning score and the outro score and the way that it closes on a freeze frame of her, like, running away scared and just, like, the red text on the closing credits, like, it reminds me a little bit, Mike, of the opening credits to Mom and Dad, where it's like, oh, like, it's a movie of a different time. I like that, but it also feels strange to me that it was so anachronistic to the rest of the movie. It's interesting you say that, like, I didn't exactly feel like it was like a 70s
2: type thing. I got like even further back and maybe it's just because of the type of thriller it is. But I even felt like it almost felt like a film from the 60s or a little bit in its in its style and and just in like its uh, subject matter. And just the I I don't know, there were a lot of psycho thrillers about institutions in the 60s. And
1: when was Cuckoo's Nest? Was that 60s or 70s?
0: The book is the 60s, I believe, but the, okay,
1: but the movie came out in the 70s, I think, yeah.
2: right? Yeah, and then I just mentioned earlier, like, Shock Corridor was a film Sam Fuller did in the 60s, and it's about a reporter who goes undercover into an institution and ends up thinking he might actually be crazy, and I don't know, I just got that vibe, though, I did get, like, this didn't feel very modern to me, which is kind of... Yeah, it is kind of weird because it's shot on an iPhone, and it's crystal clear, and it's got its own aspect ratio and everything, you know? Like, there's all this sort of fresh newness to it, and yet that doesn't detract from its vibe, or like, its groove, or it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, or what it's trying, I feel like it's coming across the way it wants to. Like none of this technology is getting in the way for me. It's not distracting or anything. And and like the tone is coming across for me.
0: You know, he's always been in love as a filmmaker with the 60s from that Richard Lester book that, you know, that he wrote and the fact that the, the Limey is all all about the 60s, uh, revisiting the 60s, the, the score to that or the songs that, you know, he chooses in that movie, the actors he's got in that movie. I would also situate this as a sort of a, a 60s feel. And you're right. The juxtaposition of, in other hands, the juxtaposition, of that, those sort of stylistic things with the way that it's being made on sort of kind of a a new technology, you know? Right. Fall apart in other people's hands. But I think it works really well here. The movie feels very loose to me. It feels like something that that he could have gone and made over like a weekend sometime, you know? And I mean that in in a good sense. I remember there was some criticism when the movie came out that it felt as though it had sort of been tossed together. And I think that's actually one of the strengths of the movie, that it doesn't all feel completely completely knit together. And there's not really an explanation of how this George guy ended up at this institution that she happened to have been, you know, that she happens to have committed herself to. I mean, there's under scrutiny. I'm not sure how much of it holds up, but I think it's something just meant to be experienced kind of in the moment, in the way that she does. And in that way, I think it really works the
2: first time I kind of had the trouble like oh there's no real sort of like lead into him he's just he just appears there and you know one day and you have to kind of take her word for it and figure out if she's telling the truth or not because there's no it doesn't there's no introduction to this guy he's just there the second time watching it though it's crazy because all the opening shots up until her going to the institution are like most of them are like these like prying sort of like stalker shots like halfway behind a bush or like way across the Plaza or like these super wide Shots like looking at her walking away And stuff though the opening shot of the movie Is one of those shots and there's One of them like leading up to her going to The institution too so he's stalking her in the opening part of this movie. And he even appears at her office. She thinks she sees him. She actually did. It's nuts. Like He's using the camera to tell the story in any other way that he would. So it doesn't matter if you're
1: shooting film or digital. It matters how you're shooting film or digital. We get a lot of very uncomfortable close-ups with the way that he's shooting this. And it's really putting you in her headspace. And there's a lot I think where it feels like she's either looking directly at the camera or like way closer to the camera than most people normally are. Mm. And I do like the way he does that. It's unsettling.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder if that was a bit of like leftover from Mosaic too, when the, you know, we got a couple <laughs> of those like extreme, like what are you going to do next? But uh, choose your own adventure shot. But this <laughs> reminded me more of like Jonathan Demme or something. Yeah, where right, right, You're using, again, he's using the shots for intent and purpose and stuff and that's cool, you know, like he's not not every shot, but when it counts and stuff like those close ups and stuff like the prying camera.
0: She's aware she's being watched in those moments, or she at least fears that she's being watched. And by having the camera sort of fish-eyed and so up close to her, it's sort of like putting us in the position of sort of identifying both with her in that feeling and also the fact that we are watching her, that we are – the movie is stalking her. Do you know what I mean? Like we, the audience, in a funny way, are stalking this woman and that that makes us part of what is invasive to her. Did either of you notice in that
1: one scene where Jay Farrow is leading the group help, the group therapy session, that Full Frontal was on the TV? No, no way. You got to be kidding. That would drive me crazy if that was... Uh, no. So I didn't... I wouldn't have recognized it otherwise, but it was on IMDb, and then you can see over somebody's shoulder, you can see Katherine Keener there, and I'm like, oh, right, yeah. But it was just like, oh, they're just watching Soderbergh's older movie, so I thought that was kind of like a cool little uh, drop, and even though it is my least favorite Soderbergh movie, it's, you know... Well,
2: I wonder if that's why it's in there. It's right, an Easter totally. egg, you know, saying like I have experimented before in the past, and it you know this is this is me now.
0: Right, or to say like this is like what they're going to show in the Looney Bin is the <laughs> is this crazy movie, you know?
2: But it's funny because that movie specifically was when he was like I'm going to use digital. This is going to be shot on digital, and there's like that one Brad Pitt scene that's shot on film for like you know comparison or what I think, right? That's when he really was like I'm going to experiment, and this is when he's like Well, I'm going iPhone. So like, it kind of feels to me like he's just doing like a little callback to himself. And that's fine. That's great. I like that. I wondered, is this on IMDb? Is he the voice of the lawyer that calls that the mom's talking to on the phone? Because it just seems like. That wasn't,
1: that wasn't in there.
2: Oh, okay. Because it just, the way the guy is delivering those lines, it just seems like he's, it just felt Soderbergh, like it might've been him in a way to sneak himself like into the
1: movie. You know, he did sneak into the movie is Matt Damon. Yes. Oh my gosh, dude. Joey, what
2: was I just talking about? I mentioned like he was, he's like the new... Sort of like cameo king, like going back to Euro Trip, where he's like, oh right, yeah, the guy mm-hmm. in Eurotrip and then you know he showed up in super disguise in Deadpool Two. He's in this. I, I held my
1: tongue so hard to not mention this. <laughs> Here he is. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, because he was also in. Oh, yeah, you said the Deadpool Two. That's what that's what all kicked it off, right? He was like unrecognizable. One of the people I follow on Letterbox said it just feels like we're at the point of Matt Damon's career. Where he's just wandering onto film sets and people <laughs> just letting him stay because yeah. he just keeps showing up. One, I mean, it's not a cameo it's just a very 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 small part but in the group therapy scene there's that one blonde girl who's sort of sitting kind of facing Claire Foy like she's not in the group yeah she's just sort of she's she's the one I think Jay Farrow talks to when he's like you know don't touch anybody but he makes a joke about like ejaculating on people's hair like which yeah. is like, a weird <laughs> right, right throwaway joke or whatever but he says that to her I met her she is in another movie another psychological horror movie called Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl that was at Fantastic Fest maybe a year and a half ago like almost, I guess almost two years ago now so I met her, she's really nice because I'm like she looks so familiar and I'm like why do I know her because she's been in like nothing and she's got a tiny part in this so I was like oh because I met I talked to her so Amy Irving as her yeah. mom I was like how
2: the hell do I know that and then you know Sue Snell from Carrie I was like oh my gosh I can't believe this it's amazing yeah. like she's still got it she's so great in this is like the where's my daughter like i would not want you know like she seems like she's totally going the bat for her daughter and it's legit and everything and she's great and then juno temple
1: almost unrecognizable hair blindness to the extreme (laughs) yeah
2: seriously seriously like i remember watching the first time like going whoa she's the one person that deserves to be here huh okay i get it I just think that that was a great choice to have that character, too, as, yeah, this is what these places, these are who these places are genuinely intended for, not her, you know, that three or four of the other people in there seem pretty normal, I mean, half of them maybe really do belong there, but, like, you know what I'm saying, like, I liked how she was representing
1: Who, Juno Temple? Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm just saying as far as, like, sort of filling out, you know, all the representatives, like, you know, your and your
1: insanes and
2: your unsanes.
1: (laughs) Right. What I think is kind of funny, and funny is the wrong word, but it seems like in every movie she's in, she gets naked. Like, everything. Like, for whatever reason, she'll find a reason to get naked. And here, it almost happens again at the end. Like, she brought in, I mean, she's killed brutally on screen, but she's brought in to sleep with the stalker. I was like, there's no way, because there's like 15 minutes on the movie, I'm like, there's no, like, it's going to break her streak and then she starts making out I'm like oh it's actually going to happen here and then it doesn't happen which is fine like it's just it was weird how that's like her thing like she's just this you know sexual being or something
2: I'm thinking of the movie Killer Joe which has lot not just her nudity but lots of nudity all around uh, But and also like, yeah the the, the the chicken wing scene oh my gosh yeah that, <laughs> at the very end But uh, I don't think she gets naked in, in the Dark Knight Returns but she's barely in that uh, but like in Killer Joe and other roles like she really seems like this dreamy sort of wavy like far from reality type of character for the most part like she's playing like just very strange off-kilter types of roles for the most part so like I really like her in this part like again I feel like the actor service the role in a lot of ways where like you know maybe the only other person I would have bought in this is um Aubrey Plaza but like she's kind of doing this and she's over on Legion killing it so like yeah I, I really found like she was a good fit for this.
0: This movie is the biggest advertisement for reading the fine print. As all of of these, like, privacy policies keep popping up on everybody's apps and stuff.
1: GDPR, yep.
0: The idea that, like, you know, she even asks, like, do I need to, you know— like read every you know every word. And the woman's like, oh, it's pretty boilerplate, you know. And she, like the rest of us do, just given a set of forms, like signs the forms, and that fucks her, you know. And I, I think that that's it's interesting. I felt that even more now than probably I would have if I'd seen it when it came out, given how many of those sort of forms are coming our way. What I like about
1: the way that the movie treats her "quote unquote" incarceration is that it's not her fault that she gets stuck. I mean, it, I guess it is her fault because she doesn't read it, but nobody's going to read that, but. Everything that happens to keep her there is her fault. Like, she's not really at fault, but it's her punching people or, you know, defending herself against people groping or throwing coffee at Juno Temple or whatever. It's all these things that she's doing to keep her there. So she's like an active part of her, you know, incarceration or whatever. And I like that part of it that there's reason for her to stay there it's not like the system just keeps beating her down it's not like she's getting drugged every day and that's leading to things it's you know it's life and she's just not handling it right and I like that part of it that she's in a way sort of complicit in her her downfall or her you know her capture. There's a part of this movie that's saying, does she actually belong here?
2: Like, there's a reasonable argument to be made when she's in there that, judging on her behavior, like, maybe she needs a few days of observation. You know, the movie sets her up to be pretty well together. Like, she's great at her job. She's using dating apps. I mean, she has an episode that triggers her with the dude she brings home and that sends her to this place. But, like, for the most part, she seems, like, with it. um, She's functional, yeah yeah like she seems functional and that to me is what's so scary is that like she's in a place where she's like looking for help and they're not there to offer her help they're there to trap her and she's got her guard down and she's not aware of what they're Actual intent is. And so therefore, she's truly seeking help. And that makes the betrayal so much worse when what they're really there to do is just like get her money, is like hold her hostage until like they have her money, basically, until that runs out. And so, like that whole part where they're trapping her with the suicide question. I remember in theaters watching this when they ask her that. I like I think out loud I just went like, oh no, (laughs) like don't answer that. Don't be honest. She should have just gone to a Therapist. This is one thing I wrote down, and I think she should have done a little more research, and then when she's trapped, she maybe should have asked her mom to just cancel her insurance right away. However, they are medicating her at that point. She's not thinking clear enough, and the situation is sort of more than they can handle.
0: You know, another thing that the movie sort of parallel that it draws is the scenes with Matt Damon as the detective who's taking her through all the things that, that she has to do to change her life around in order to avoid her stalker. I mean, talk about the system not working for you, right? Like, like, she has to turn her life inside out. She has to give up social media accounts. She has to change where she parks. She has to think about, you know, like parking under a street light and carrying her keys with her, which comes back at the end. Like, there are all these things that she has to do because this guy is threatening to her, is stalking her. And that the onus is on her to to sort of deal with that in that way. You know, she was in some ways, and maybe not quite, this is maybe taking a little too far, but she's in some ways as trapped on the outside as she is on the inside in the
1: institution. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, she had to give up everything to just live some semblance of a normal life, and it's clear both in what we think might be her being unwell while she's trapped on the inside, and then even at the end when she's free, that she's always going to see that guy, whether he's actually there or not. You know, no matter where she goes,
0: and she has this lecherous interaction with her boss at the beginning, where it, he just feels like, and the way he is, Soderbergh is using the camera so well to let him take up all this space in the frame, and he's, we think. Maybe hitting on her like we should come, we should go to this conference together and yeah. you know and at least that's the implication that's how she's hearing it so that therefore that's how we're hearing it and you just it's clear that something is sort of wrong and only later do we that's why I'm really curious to see it a second time Mike hearing you talk about it too like to see how the beginning is actually building to what's coming later because in some ways it, it kind of felt like it wasn't like I. It didn't feel like a stalking movie until like the stalker is real for us. And I'm curious to see it now because now as I think back on it, as you were saying before, there are all these techniques early on that are letting us, like cluing us into that. It's just that we may not be smart enough to to pick up on it the first time.
2: I definitely remember thinking towards the end of that scene in the theater that she's using sort of these like deflection tools to get out of that bad situation. She's like, I should get back to work. And he's like, yep, yep, yep. So like, I think he was sort of on her or testing the waters or whatever and like that to me was just like okay like I knew this movie was about a stalker and we're not there yet but she has to deal with you know just fucking guys all right, day right, long right. too right. you know what i'm right. saying like on top of everything else like she's already in a threatened sort of state and everything like that and then she has to deal with what society throws at her every, every day too and so ugh, you know like that just like instantly sort of ramps up the uncomfort level <laughs> you know it gets you it sort of like sparks the fire of the flame of uncomfortability here i did sort of like in contrast that scene at the Bar where she's using like the dating app and you're like uh, she's all very assertive and she's like oh this is gonna go the way you wanted to but only tonight and you never hear from me again and all that kind of thing but that feels at the moment like she's taking control but ultimately that's what sends her into like a tailspin the action of trying to assert and control a situation ultimately broke her to a point where she got trapped like I think another big thing that this movie's trying to say is talk about your feelings with your family and people that you trust and have a support system that doesn't work for money, for like the government or isn't getting funded by the state and stuff like try to avoid hospitals when it comes to your feelings and at first you know if you can talk if you have someone in your life that you can talk to go to them call a suicide prevention hotline but but don't just look someone up on google and go to the first place that you see because you have no idea yeah
0: <laughs> not good there was a whole i think it was a john oliver uh, on HBO. He did a whole thing on treatment programs and how there is no... Yeah, This had more to do with sort of addiction treatment, although isn't that what Jay Farrow's in for? And they they talked well, about... Well, quote unquote, in for. Right, right, right. Yeah. His cover story. Yeah. In this big, long segment, they were talking about how it's not that that as an industry is not regulated. You don't have to be certified. Anybody could start a treatment program in their like house and start calling it a treatment program. And, and, and that, that sort of you know, the idea, uh, look, people, people should get the help that they need, but the idea of like four, these for, explicitly for profit treatment centers is kind of nefarious that they have this other motive. I mean, every, everybody needs to, you know, make money to survive, but like this is preying on people. And the extent to which this happens in real life is really frightening.
2: I think it was maybe like Girl Interrupted or something was one of like another movie where uh, Winona hey Winona forever that could also be like a contenders film too but like Winona is just sort of driven to an institution, and they're like, well, like, we're your parents, and like, you're going here, and there's nothing you could do about it. There's just something, it gets to in this movie, too, that's just so scary about just that you aren't in control of your own life. Like, you don't have rights, and the idea that everyone should have those, and when you're so used to them, and they get stripped away, and you're just treated like a commodity, it's very disturbing. Like, that's an interesting angle for, like, a horror movie, you know? That's an interesting thing, like, it's a very strange, but interesting hanger to, you know, put this coat on. (laughs) Like, this industry. Like, let's base a horror movie around people getting ripped off by this industry.
1: I think I ran out of notes. The only thing thing that I've written down is that this movie cost one and a half million to make and made 12.3 at the box office. So, pretty successful. I mean, he's once again proving he knows how to do this thing and make money doing it.
2: I remember seeing, when I saw it in theaters, it was, it wasn't like packed, but there was a lot of people there. Like it was a good, there was a good showing. So that was good to see. Like at least, you know, that people showed up when I showed up, they were there. The only other note I had in here is uh, (laughs) this was, this got me so much by surprise. I totally forgot this happened. But at the end of the movie, when um, she jumps out of the trunk of the car and they're sort of wrestling through the woods, she stabs him in the eye. Made me think of Spalding Gray. I was like, I wonder if, like, (laughs) I wonder if (laughs) Soderbergh was like, let's go for the eye here. I mean, there's a whole thing of, like, you know, horror movies attacking the eye of the viewer and everything like that. But I just thought that was clever. I was like, that's a shout out to Spalding.
0: I hadn't thought about that. I, you're you're totally you're totally right. I, you know the the idea of the eyes being the thing that started to covet her first, right? That, that old Silence of the lambs thing. You covet what you see. The, that that played into that. He's been watching her, you know, so much this whole time. She's gonna go for an eye. But I like I like that, and that does There's one of the advantages of watching all these movies together sort of in a row. You you do you do pick up on that stuff, whether intended or not.
1: Mike, do you have any other notes or any other thoughts about Unseen? I think that pretty much. Does it for me? Did you guys did you guys rank it? I have it like sixteenth, I think. It's like basically right smack in the middle. Okay. My I feel like my rankings. I'm riding a little
2: high off of this screening of it, so right right now <laughs> yeah. it's at ten, but I think it might drop to like twelve or thirteen. Um, yeah. So it's right around there, though. I th- I feel like it's you know in the upper tier of his stuff, especially like well, I feel like since his return, we've gotten two great movies, like two great return films with this and logan lucky like i just couldn't be happier with him being back so i'm really looking forward to whatever he's
1: doing next that basketball movie with Algie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Unless there's something else, there might also be something else but between now and then. Who knows? <laughs> who can say with him? I mean, just just seeing the
2: stuff with the um, the reporter stuff in this, I'd love to see him do one of those like post movies, or you know, like uh, an investigative.
0: Well, he's going to Panama Papers. Yeah. Oh,
2: okay.
1: Well, there you go.
0: Can we talk about are we can talk about Brian De Palma now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Let's talk about Brian De Palma trashing Steven Soderbergh. I didn't read it. What exactly happened?
0: So, Brian De Palma, on the day we're recording this, it was reported that Brian De Palma was telling a French. I don't know if it's a magazine or some a, a kind of French publication that he'd been hearing about Soderbergh. He watched part of an episode of The Nick and he, he the quote is, "Steven Soderbergh, a visual director, are you kidding? Give me an example of a great visually memorable scene from Soderbergh or a silent sequence based on staging. I saw an episode of The Nick and there is nothing that impressed me visually. So it's kind of been blown up into this thing that he's dissing on On way he is. He's dissing Soderbergh's visual stuff. Style, but it does not sound as though he's informed himself well enough to to sort of share this great an opinion. But boy, it made my blood boil.
1: Hey, you and Nick Jenkins, you know, who was on the Fede Alvarez episode, were going at it, but not against each other. Like the story of yeah, just together, at it against yeah. De Palma. Yeah, teaming up, uniting that Missoula power against De Palma. I mean, it's irksome. I mean, like at
2: times we definitely have unkind things to say about films and things like that but I mean I feel like we always try to keep it as cordial as possible and this kind of came out as like a out and out diss like against someone's my entire style and I mean it's just like well Brian De Palma like, what what have you been up to lately you know like Steven (laughs) Soderbergh did all this shit when he was retired like the Nick isn't even considered like when he's working you know (laughs) like he just did (laughs) that on the side like go watch a, a couple of his films in a row like I feel like one thing that's super distinct about him is his visual style. You know, he gets very experimental with his editing and that keeps it quite lively at times. And I mean, Brian De Palma is considered to be a extremely visual filmmaker. And I think maybe at times to his you know disadvantage yes. um, but you know make no mistake i feel like he has some great work he's done some great work and he's also done some you know not so great stuff either but it's just it gets under my skin a little bit yeah. when when someone of that i find like like i like the palma like i find there's value in in what he's done so when he comes out and bashes someone else that i like it's just disheartening
0: i could go on about my feelings about brian de palma i won't one thing i will say is that he has a kind of signature style having to do with things like the split screen stuff and the and, and the idea of long takes, <laughs> Hitchcock. and very Hitchcockian, right? Like he and and so if you you turn on a movie that he directed, you turn on Blowout, and then you turn on Carrie, and you're like, oh yeah, this is the same guy. And Soderbergh is so much more interested in experimentation, as we have seen as we've gone through this. You know, you turn on Magic Mike, and then you look at Bubble. Like it's not the same filmmaker, you know, like he's right. he's he's stretching himself in, in sort of all these different ways. The article that I read about the where I saw the, the uh, Brian De Palma thing picked up was in IndieWire. And they had ranked, I, I guess last year, this time last year, June 2017, they ranked the best directed drama series of the 21st century. Oh. The number one for them was The Girlfriend Experience. And then number, really? number two was Mad Men. Number three was The Nick. And then it's Better Call Saul. Well, Soderbergh didn't direct of any
1: of the Girlfriend experience, right? He was no, just
0: producing that. No, no, no. Right. So yeah, the whole thing his influence. he was number three. That he came in in, in yeah. the third out of, you know, like ahead of The Leftovers. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, and that's just the top five. I think that there's more to directing than staging. And staging is something that Brian De Palma can do very well. But that's not the end all be all of visual filmmaking. You know, sir. <laughs> or
1: is it... It's not. (laughs) Cool. Well, we will be back at some point for whatever his next movie is. I think we'll continue to do this. As we said on the Fede Alvarez episode, the next director we're going to tackle is Christopher Nolan, which we will put out sometime (laughs) a little bit later this summer. Without me, right? Yeah. Uh, You know, Tobin's going to do a commentary track on each of our podcasts (laughs) telling us why all these movies are so good. Get ready
2: for Tobin Cinemakers Christopher Nolan, the rebuttal.
1: But yeah, we will be back for more whenever they come out. We will be back for Nolan later this summer. And then beyond that, who knows? More to come, but TBD... As it comes, but for all things, cinemakers and Tobin's podcast, The Contenders, and Mike's podcast, Third Times a Charm, and my way too many podcasts, <laughs> you can go to CageClub.me, facebookcom cageclub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter or Instagram. Now, go check out all of our things there. Never miss an episode. Everything's up for free. We're over 500 episodes. Just go dig into the archives, see what you can find. You know, go listen to our Snake Eyes episode, Cage in a De Palma film. Yeah, not a great are. movie. Maybe great opening episode. shot. I don't remember. Yeah, the opening shot and the closing shot with the ring in the column. Oh, so confusing. But yeah, cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we will see you next time whenever it is on Cinemakers.